This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. It's especially a, a great privilege to be introducing tonight one of the foremost experts in the entire world, on the life and work of the French Jesuit priest and paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. It's my honour then to hand you over to Professor Ursula King, who is going to speak to us tonight about the evolution of religion, society and consciousness. Reflections inspired by Teilhard de Chardin. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ursula King. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm also particularly happy to speak about my work on Teilhard de Chardin, in which I've been involved for the last 50 years. I started in 1963, or even before that, 1962. So I won't go, I could entertain you now with many, many um, anecdotes, but then we would never get to the proper lecture, so I better stop doing that. But before I forget, I want to actually say I'm so pleased to speak about Teilhard in America because there is really a revival in the interest in Teilhard de Chardin. There was a great interest in the 1960s when the works first began to be published and a lot of young students were influenced reading Teilhard and then there has been a sort of lull and less and less interest and he's been pushed more to the background. But I have an impression that now with, with a very different kind of feeling and zeitgeist that there is a real genuine revival. And as an example of this, I can mention that an American group of people, the Frank Frost publications, Maria, Mary and Frank Frost, are working on a big documentary film of two hours for public uh, television, which will be screened on Easter 2015, 60 years after Teilhard's death. And they're really doing an immense amount of research, and it's a really genuine global cooperation, including cooperation from the, from the Chinese. I should have really have brought some information, but I forgot to bring the, to print out the material. But that is going on right now, and it's very, very exciting. Then as another example in the interest, a renewed interest in Teilhard, I must mention that um, I was interviewed some time ago for about an hour and a half for the program by Krista Tippett. I was interviewed by Krista Tippett for the program On Being, which will be broadcast on public radio any time now. I, the latest information I've had is that the program should go out on December 13. So that's another 
interesting example of the renewed interest in Teja's work. So I hope you will be interested in what I have to say on this particular aspect because there are so many different aspects one can uh, talk about with Teja's very, very comprehensive work and interest. But I have really, um, I'm, I'm focusing here on the question of evolution of religion, society and consciousness. Many changes in contemporary society and consciousness are due to social, political, economic and intellectual changes at global level and our more advanced scientific knowledge and closer global cooperation lead us to a completely new context. They're also connected to the increasingly sophisticated understanding of the complex processes of evolutionary becoming that affect all areas of human experience. I want to argue that human beings have developed a new global Earth consciousness that requires the development of a new Earth community, which we need in order for the future of people and planet to be a viable one. And a dynamic evolutionary way of thinking is central to this development. I'm, of course, not a biologist or physicist, nor I'm qualified in any of the other sciences, because my work has always been in philosophy, theology, and religious studies, where I've been very deeply influenced since my student days by the thought of Teilhard de Chardin, who lived between 1881 to 1955. And he was certainly a pioneer in thinking about evolutionary questions. And Teilhard was certainly very deeply concerned with what it means to be human in the modern world and with questions of where we can find the values, the energy resources and the will and the sense of responsibility to take humanity forward into the future so that we become a more united people and build a better global world. His deep Christian faith and mystical orientation made him see the need for greater love and peace for humanity so that we could come more closely together. Now, I want to speak about various aspects. I will first of all speak about evolution and contemporary consciousness, and then I will concentrate on Teja's understanding of evolution to look at his way of conceiving the future evolution of humanity and then I will particularly talk about religion and evolution before I sum up and discuss some of the implications of this particular approach. So let me come to evolution and contemporary consciousness. I first want to say something about the word, the meaning of the word evolution, which is too often understood to refer basically only to biological evolution as outlined by Charles Darwin and others. But let us not forget that the word evolution has itself evolved and that Darwin was not the first to use this word. Social and historical thinkers before him had already applied this concept to the development of the human mind and to that of different societies. Only subsequently was the idea of evolution introduced into biology. During the 18th century, French philosophers such as Montesquieu, Diderot, Rousseau and Voltaire already explored ideas about evolutionary developments that would eventually lead to new thinking about the mutability of different species. 
such new thought, this is in the 18th century, such new thought departed from the beliefs held since antiquity and reflected in the stories of the Bible that the chain of beings is fixed, that it is neither changing nor evolving. It was in fact the suggestions of his predecessors that inspired Darwin to adopt and develop the theory of evolution in order to explain the remarkable observation on different animals and plants that he had collected during his famous voyage to South America. However, the word evolution itself did not appear in the first edition of his famous book, The Origin of Species, published in 1859, because Darwin was initially quite reluctant to use that word since it had become associated with much grander ideas that he rejected. Of course, since Darwin's days, the scientific understanding of the workings of evolution has greatly expanded. These ideas are rather unsatisfactory, or these workings are rather unsatisfactorily described as the mechanisms of evolution. And yet the word process would be so much more appropriate to describe evolution's dynamic and organic nature, which is not mechanical at all. Several scientists have now proposed more complex theories about the whole process of evolutionary becoming. They have suggested a wider meaning of evolution, especially in connection with human society and consciousness. The social importance of evolution is enormous, not only for our understanding of the past, but also in providing insights and inspirations for approaching the future. Currently, a new consciousness is emerging in connection with our understanding of the story of the universe. It is linked to our knowledge of the immensity of space, the depths of time, and the complexity of life and of human cultures in a globally interconnected world. This awe-inspiring story is beautifully told in the film The Journey of the Universe, the epic story of cosmic earth and human transformation, which has been produced by Mary Evelyn Tucker, John Grimm and Brian Swim. And I'm sure some in the audience will be familiar with this outstandingly and extraordinarily beautiful film, which really gives you great cause for many, many reflections. This story of the universe demonstrates clearly that the story of humanity emerges out of the story of the universe and is an integral part of the vast interconnected web of life covering our planet Earth. The discovery of universal evolutionary processes implies a profound revolution in human thinking and action. So it's the revolution of evolution affects us in our deepest innermost thinking and being. It gives rise to an altogether new awareness of the universal processes of evolutionary becoming that now call for the further self-evolution of humanity. This implies that humanity bears a tremendous responsibility for the future evolution of the whole human species and the planet. Brian Swim, one of the authors of this film, has argued that a new form of consciousness is emerging grounded in the story of cosmogenesis. An even stronger argument can probably be made for the emergence of a new Earth consciousness linked to scientific research in the Earth sciences and life sciences, 
but also the influence given to the given by the global environmental movement and also the influence of the newly created Earth Charter, which was signed in 2000. The general sense of the long-drawn-out history of the Earth, of the whole history of life, and the immense biodiversity of our planet has grown exponentially around the world. Most people will be familiar with the famous image of our bluish-green planet floating in space, surrounded by blackness, the amazing photograph called Earth's Rise, not Sunrise, not the life, rise of life, not the rise of consciousness, just Earth's Rise, which was taken in 1968 during the Apollo 8 mission. And it has been rightly described as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. It has truly become a defining icon of the new Earth's consciousness. The scientist and former NASA researcher Dave Pruitt argues in a book called Reason and Wonder, A Copernican Revolution in Science and Spirit, he argues there that we are experiencing a third Copernican revolution right now. Namely, after the discovery of the immensity of space, which was the first Copernican revolution, a second revolution occurred through discovering the depths of time with Darwin's studies of evolution. Now we are experiencing, or we are approaching very fast, a third, so-called third Copernican revolution through the coming convergence of science and spirit. Science and spirit, a process that is just beginning. I can't say more about this for reasons of lack of time, but I ask what are the implications of this new consciousness for society, religion, and consciousness? Uh, society, religion, and consciousness, and spirituality also. More and more people are asking these questions, yet few religious thinkers have wrestled with these challenging issues. Few have reflected on the crucial importance of evolution for contemporary religious thought and practice. Teyada Shaddai is one of the very few modern thinkers for whom evolution provided the dominant note of his entire work during the first half of the 20th century. Earlier than most, he became aware that the recognition of evolution as a unifying perspective and process has revolutionary consequences and affects all aspects of the modern world. As he wrote in his best-known work, The Human Phenomenon, which most of you will probably know as The Phenomenon of Man, but it has been retranslated under a new title, which is much more appropriate and exact to the French original. Evolution was much more to him than a theory, a system, or a hypothesis. On the contrary, it is, evolution is a general condition, he writes, to which all theories, all hypotheses, all systems must bow. Evolution is a light illuminating all facts, a curve that all lines must follow. And from early on, he was conscious of the importance of evolution for contemporary religion, society, and consciousness. Much of his search for a new spirituality, commensurate with the modern world, revolves around the attempt to bring together mystic religious insights with evolutionary understanding, for which he compellingly argued throughout his life, and for which... By doing so, he suffered very much indeed. So let me explain a little bit more about Teilhard and evolution. 
He became conscious of the impact of evolution during the final years of his theological studies between 1910 and 12. Evolution meant for him a radical reorientation since he became alive to a completely new dimension, as he writes. And he, from then onwards, always worked within the larger framework of an evolutionary perspective. After the completion of his philosophical and theological studies in Hastings, England, where he discovered evolution, and I've written a whole paper on this, this is an amazing discovery for him and for his thinking. After finishing these studies, he moved in 1912 to Paris for continuing his scientific training because he was really very much drawn to sciences and he was drawn whether he should become a contemplative and devote himself entirely to religion or whether he could also pursue uh, satisfactorily scientific studies, which he did. He undertook this training at the Musée National d'Histoire Naturelle in France, in Paris, under the eminent French scientist Marcelin Boulle, who was then the leading figure in paleontology. His Teilhard scientific studies, covering biology, geology and paleontology, were soon interrupted by World War I, but he later completed his research with a brilliant doctorate in 1922, for which he was awarded two distinguished prizes. He then started lecturing at the Institut Catholique, the Catholic University in Paris, from which I graduated many, many years later. But his international scientific career first really took off when he went to China to undertake paleontological expeditions with another Jesuit. The height of his scientific career came later through his close collaboration with Chinese geologists who found the fossils of so-called Peking Man, on which Teilhard wrote several works while an official member of the Chinese Geological Survey, much criticized by his French masters, who thought that all the findings should go to France, to the French Museum, and Teilhard took the side of the Chinese. Very early, very unusual. In 1952, Teilhard was awarded the Prix Gaudry, the most prestigious prize of the Geological Society of France, for his scientific research. The eulogy for this award was given by the distinguished French vertebrate paleontologist Jean Pivot, one of Teilhard's former <coughs> students. Pivot's address lists Teilhard's major achievements, his expeditions and research in China, but also his early promotion of the notion of the biosphere, his study of the history of life and of human origins, and the emergence of what Teilhard had called the noosphere, about which I will speak later, of the same immensity and importance as the biosphere, but transcending it into the human sphere of thinking. Pifto has rightly pointed out in the preface to Teilhard's 11 uh, volumes of scientific works that Teilhard was during his lifetime not known at all except as a paleontologist. Yet after his death, the publications of his philosophical and religious essays Forbidden, until then only known to a small number of friends who saw these essays in duplicates, secretly distributed, an extraordinary detective story, I can tell you, so that he was quite well known among his friends who read these essays, but they were not in the public domain. So these essays, when they were published and his books, revealed Teilhard to be a profound religious thinker whose sudden fame among a large international public then caused the neglect of his immense reputation as a scientist. Yet Teilhard's thinking is profoundly embedded 
in and deeply nourished by his scientific research. The two important strands of his thought, the scientific work and his philosophical and religious reflections on his human experience in the light of scientific understanding, must be studied together to perceive their integral connections. The prominent British biologist Sir Julian Huxley greatly appreciated Teilhard's views and has succinctly several times expressed what the two scientists shared in their view of evolution. Huxley wrote, We both realized that in the million-year passage from subhuman to human, man had stepped across a critical threshold and left the slow-moving biological phase of evolution for the new, faster-moving and increasingly mind-directed psychosocial phase in which evolution is manifested by changes in ideas in societies and cultures rather than in organisms and their genetic constitution. Uh, it's a very long quotation and it finishes on appreciating uh, Teilhard's speciality, his singularity even. Huxley concludes, he says, the linking of evolutionary biology with Christian theology, it seems to me, is his unique contribution to thought and so paves the way for the eventual reconciliation of science and religion, which will come when the religiously minded understand that theology needs a scientific foundation and grasp the fact that religion itself evolves. And when the scientifically minded accept the equally basic fact that religion is part of the evolutionary process and an important element in its psychological phase of human history. Now Huxley's words are fine testimony from one great scientist to another. The latest recognition of Teilhard's scientific standing comes from the evolutionist David Sloan Wilson, distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University here in the USA. He included a chapter on Teilhard in his latest book, and, and this chapter is entitled We Are Entering the Noosphere. It was written after Wilson's close reading of the human phenomenon, which made him realize, and this was quite recently, a few years ago, it made him realize how well Teilhard's ideas conform to present evolutionary theory. In fact, in some respects, Wilson considers Teilhard even still today ahead of current thinking. Wilson rightly asks why professional evolutionists have forgotten Teilhard as well as the humanistic side of Julian Axley. He speaks of Teilhard's exceptional act of brilliance in viewing humans not merely as a highly successful species, but in considering humanity as a new evolutionary process capable of generating a diversity of cultural forms, just as life is capable of generating a diversity of organic forms. This makes the origin of our species in some way as momentous as the origin of life itself. Wilson states, I quote, It is wrong for Teilhard to be read only for his spiritual message. Let his scientific flame burn brightly again. Yet at the same time, he speaks about Teilhard's spiritual message as relating to expanding the human capacity for love, which is intimately linked to the Christian phenomenon, as he writes. 
There can be no doubt that Teja's detailed scientific work is closely related to his religious and spiritual understanding. Towards the end of his life, he wrote a brilliant and movingly autobiographical essay called The Heart of Matter, which is also used as the title of a whole book of essays. But this particular essay, written in 1950, traces his intellectual and spiritual development and provides, in my view, the key to understanding Teja's life and vision. It's the first essay I was ever given to read by my mentor, Professor Paul Henri, who used to also teach here in La Hoya in the 1960s. It describes what a terrific, tremendous impact the discovery of evolution had on Teja de Chardin at the age of 30. So he wrote when he was in his 70s. I can remember very clearly the avidity with which at that time I read Bergson's Creative Evolution, a famous book published in 1907, which he read in 1911. The only effect that brilliant book had upon me was to provide fuel at just the right moment for fire that was already consuming my heart and mind. The magic word evolution haunted my thoughts like a tune. It was to me like an unsatisfied hunger, like a promise held out to me, like a summons to be answered. You can well imagine how strong was my inner feeling of release and expansion when I took my first still hesitant steps into an evolutive universe and saw that the dualism in which I had hitherto been enclosed was disappearing like the mist before the rising sun. Matter and spirit, these were no longer two things, but two states or two aspects of one and the same cosmic stuff. This exciting discovery of evolution confirmed in him permanently an attitude that was to govern the whole of his development. He summed this attitude up in the words, the primacy of spirit within the evolutionary process, which comes to the same thing, the primacy of the future. From being a scientist concerned with studying the early human origins in the past, he turns around and says, I'm a pilgrim of the future. The unending, and he says, to answer the summons of evolution was to take me a whole lifetime to appreciate the unendingly constructive and at the same time revolutionary effect this transposition of value produced upon my understanding, upon my prayer, and upon my action. Teilhard was fond of quoting Julian Huxley's idea that in the human being, evolution has become conscious of itself to the point of being able to control its own driving forces and to rebound upon itself. This relates to the further evolution of humanity as a species, not just to the evolution of individuals. Teja thought it possible and likely that humankind is at the threshold of higher forms of consciousness at both a personal and social level. And the responsibility for further evolution lies now with humans themselves rather than with external factors. He asked, how can we be architects of the future and develop a better life, a higher life for the human community? He reflected on the conditions and criteria by which human beings might become more united economically, politically, spiritually. How will the human species evolve further? Now, I've got a long section on the future evolution of humanity, but that is a very long process in time, and I hope it will not be too long here in time. 
Teya's book, The Future of Man, carries the motto, the whole future of the earth as of religion seems to me to depend on the awakening of our faith in the future. He combines such faith in the future with, with what he called faith in man, faith in the further development of human beings and in the greater collaboration and unification of the peoples of the earth. What is needed now is the development of life to a higher stage, which involves an effort to create a more united, more unified humanity. Central to this argument are the close interconnections between the biosphere, that is to say the layer of life, and what Teya called the noosphere, the specific layer of human thought. The organic evolution of life continues in the reflective efforts of human thinking and invention so that the biological, social, cultural and spiritual evolution are closely interrelated. Teilhard was a very early promoter of the idea of, bio of the biosphere which had only been launched, in fact the word had only been coined in 1875 by the Austrian scientist Eduard Süss who wrote a large five-volume study also on the face of the earth, long used as a geological textbook. Teilhard loved this title, The Face of the Earth. He used it as a title for one of his own essays where he writes, the great educational value of geology consists in the fact that by disclosing us to us an earth which is truly one, an earth which is in fact but a single body since it has a face. It recalls to us the possibility of establishing higher and higher degrees of organic unity in the zone of thought which envelops the world. This is really a foreboding, an idea of the concept of the noosphere, which he created in the mid-twenties together with his philosopher friend Edouard Leroy, who himself first publicized this new idea in his writings before Teilhard wrote about it himself. And this idea was taken up by the Russian scientist Vernatsky, who was living in Paris at that time, and taken to the Soviet Union. And many, many Soviet scientists have used this, and this has only come to light after the, um, after the end of communism, because these texts had never been translated before. The emergence of the concept of the noosphere is very, very interesting because it's closely related to Teilhard's experience of life in the trenches of World War I, which seems most extraordinary. Teilhard has described this in one of his early wartime essays where he sees the vision of the rise of a unified thinking earth as it's inspired him to see the sight of the full moon in the sky above. And he he had this fantasy of a kind of vision in the moonlight where he saw the globe as surrounded by a layer of blueness which symbolized for him the density of thought. It's almost like a description of this extraordinary earthrise picture, photograph, which he describes like in a dream. And he first called this thought-covered earth the great monarch, the great one thing in space out there. Then he called it the anthroposphere, the sphere of the human, and he still didn't find this word was good enough, and he looked for another expression, he finished up with the word noosphere, the noosphere. He describes with great sensitivity how he felt that he was emerging from the human race, seeing it as one self-contained whole, as though we were all linked together, floating in the void. 
And within the agony of the trenches, the bloody battles of World War I, he felt he saw the frontiers of mankind. He had the vision of mankind, humanity as one single block, while being conscious of the blackness and the emptiness surrounding the earth. So he wrote, even in this century, people are still living as chance circumstances decide for them, with no aim but their daily bread or quiet old age, unless adult humanity is to drift aimlessly and so to perish, it is essential that it rise to the concept of a specifically and integrally human effort. After having for so long done no more than allow itself to live, humanity will one day understand that the time has come to undertake its own development and to mark out its own road. Soon afterwards, he was asking, who will be the Zeus, the, the scientist who discovered the biosphere? Now, who will be the Zeus of the anthroposphere, of the noosphere? In other words, what the Austrian Zeus had done in naming and studying the layers of life on the planet as an interconnected layer of life needed to be taken further in order to capture the specificities of the human layer covering the Earth. This is what is summed up in the newly created concept of the noosphere. And Teya was certainly its prophet. Excuse me for a minute. Reflections on the significance of the noosphere and the greater unification of the human species on the planetary scale were further clarified in the essays he wrote, always quietly without publishing them, essays he wrote all after the Second World War, culminating in 1938-40 in his magnum opus, The Human Phenomenon. His concern for the future of human beings and all of life was expressed with a new urgency after the Second World War, when another visionary thinker, the Russian-American sociologist Petrem Sorokin, also passionately pleaded for the reconstruction of humanity. Both thinkers, Teya as much as Sorokin, sensed deeply the thoroughgoing changes occurring in the human community and called for further radical transformation in the organization guiding values and spiritual aims of planetary humanity. Now, I could say a lot more about the Nosphere, but I don't think I'll have the time. What is important is to really grasp this idea of the mutual embeddedness of the biosphere and Nosphere, and that has been also documented in a marvellous biosphere Nosphere reader that was published by two environmental scientists, Paul Sampson and David Pitt, in 1990. Nine, where they show how much this idea of the noosphere has already been diffused in the community of scientists, at least. So much more could be said about this. It's a very interesting topic. For Teilhard, the human being is the key to the understanding of evolution. But the noosphere itself points also beyond itself to a higher polar center that directs, sustains, and assembles the whole sheaf of our efforts. In relation to the further evolution of the human species, he experimented with finding the right word again for describing it, and he speaks of socialization, planetization, even totalization, pointing to what we today would probably call globalization. But contemporary global processes are on one hand full of opportunities, but on the other hand they have so many challenges that their outcome is certainly very uncertain today. 
Will humanity survive or will it be annihilated? Will it progress or will it stagnate? Teilhard thought we have no decisive evidence for either hope or despair. But today we have perhaps more reasons to be pessimistic than he was 60 years ago. One thing is certain. We need to find the right road, make the right choices and put our will to making effective changes as so often called for by the great ecological thinker Thomas Barry, who was much influenced by Teilhard's thought. But is it not too idealistic or even utopian to think that a rise in human consciousness will lead to the emergence of one humanity and one world civilization? In any case, why should we work for such a future civilization beyond the series of civilizations with which history is studied throughout? When we study the civilizations of the past, the question arises whether their overwhelming diversities are, the only, are only variations of the same theme of an endlessly repeated rise and fall. Can there be any fundamental advance beyond this level of repetitive successions? Teilhard was fond of reminding those who quote the wisdom of the ages and the accumulated experience of the wide span of human history how infinitely longer the cosmos has endured. In comparison with the vast geological timescale, the period of human history is dwarf-like. The past cannot be an adequate guide to our future. Today's sheer number of people around the globe, 7 billion at present, produce a compression or infolding of humanity upon itself. That's how he presented it. There is a great need for the further development of what he called co-reflection, visible in many areas of human endeavor, but especially in scientific research, which has become a vital necessity for humankind. In Teilhard's words, science is no longer an accessory occupation but an essential activity, a natural derivative of the overspill of energy constantly liberated by mechanization. The growth of the noosphere all around us is evident through global collaboration across borders, through the exponential growth of worldwide connections, through advanced forms of transportation and communication, especially through the World Wide Web. It's not surprising that because of Teya's prophetic foresight of some of these development, he is sometimes called by some people the patron saint of the internet. I don't know whether you have heard that before. <laughs> now that brings me to a section on religion and evolution, which some of you may be more interested in, I don't know. But it's important to see that all this sits in a much greater uh, interconnected sense of thinking and arguing. A higher social integration of humankind so necessary for the survival of the human species is linked to the fuller development of the inner resources of human beings. Teilhard argued that the diversity and complementarity of what he called the active currents of faith, which we would probably call today the living religious traditions, provide the necessary spiritual energy resources for nurturing the human zest for life, which is the mainspring for further self-evolution. The greatest enemy, as he sought, for human beings is a sense of inner boredom and indifference, a lack of meaning and ultimate value. In his view, the most essential requirement in furthering evolution consists in, his, in this provision of the necessary spiritual energy resources so that religions, or we would perhaps say spirituality, 
has an evolutionary role in animating human beings. It was especially the image of God which Teja saw in need of urgent redefinition. Modern people have not yet found the God they can adore, a God commensurate with the newly discovered dimensions of the universe. In 1950, he noted in his diary, God is not dead, but he changes. He speaks of the transformation of the God of the gospel into a God of evolution, a transformation without deformation. In discussing the evolution of religion, he was not interested in drawing up a typology of religions based on their past, as found, for example, in Robert Bella's typology of religious evolution that correlates different types of religious symbols with religious action, organization, and social meanings. No, Teja was primarily concerned with the impact that evolutionary thinking will have on the present and future religious beliefs and practices. And he there considered three possibilities. And that is just a sketchy summary. First, the acceptance of religion as traditionally understood while rejecting all evolution. You know plenty of positions like that. Secondly, alternatively, the acceptance of evolution while rejecting all religions. We know plenty of examples of that also. Third, the acceptance of both religion and evolution as closely interrelated, where religion is reinterpreted from an evolutionary perspective and where the process of evolution leads to the emergence of new spiritual developments within the, religious, within the human community. This is very much Teja's own position, and it is linked to his fundamental conviction that, I quote, from the depths of matter to the highest peak of the spirit, there is only one evolution. And in his view, religions have an indispensable role to play in furthering the evolutionary advance towards the spirit. No past religious teachings can fully cope with the many new aspects of humanity's present development at the species level. In his view, the only religion possible in the future is a religion which will teach us, I quote, in the very first place to recognize, love and serve with passion the universe of which we form a part. It had become clear to him that human progress can go cannot go further on without developing a mysticism of its own, a mysticism based on the faith in the value and infallibility of evolution. Whereas he presented Christianity in his earlier years as the very religion of evolution, he later increasingly stressed the need for deep transformation of his own Christian religious tradition. So that is something I could say a lot more about, but we don't have the time. It was nonetheless, especially the depths of his Christian faith, that made him see the immense evolutionary process within an ultimately spiritual perspective, which led him to extrapolations that you can't really back by scientific evidence, but there's also no scientific evidence against it. Divine presence radiates for him through all levels of the universe, through matter, life, and human experience. It provides an all-surrounding, all-embracing milieu that Teja also called a mystical or divine milieu, celebrated in his famous Mass on the World of 1923 and in his spiritual classic The Divine Milieu of 1927. This divine milieu, invisible, 
impenetrable, very mysterious, yet also very embracing and very sustaining. It surrounds us, he writes, like an ocean, or it is like the air we all breathe and never notice, that we breathe to sustain our life. This divine milieu can invade our whole being and it can transform it, since all human experiences, all joys and sufferings, have the potential for divinization through the outpourings of divine love. For Teilhard, this milieu revealed itself as the presence of the cosmic Christ, to whom he also refers as a universal or Christic element in all things, and whom he calls ultimately Christ Omega. This notion of Omega is an extrapolation of evolutionary developments, the ultimate goal of spiritual and spiritual culmination point where all universal becoming finds its completion. This is not scientific data, but an interpretation based on a deep religious faith. As a Christian believer, Teya understood the ultimate omega point as an integration of all realities into a personal divine center of union and communion for all beings. Non-believers will not share this deeply spiritual and ultimately mystical interpretation of evolution. But similar views can also be found outside the Christian faith. For example, in the modern Hindu thinker Sri Aurobindo, who lived from 1872 to 1950, whose deeply spiritual understanding of evolution is not unlike that of his contemporary Teilhard de Chardin. In other words, you have a remarkable parallelism, parallelism here in two very different religious traditions. And Teilhard uses Christian uh, concepts and Aurobindo uses deeply Hindu concepts, but they both speak about the future evolution of humanity in very, very similar um, inspiration and vision. Now I want to say something about the zest for life and the transformative powers of love. <clears throat> in Teya's view, we cannot advance the world and the flourishing of people and planet without a zest for life, le goût de vivre in, France, in French. He described this zest as nothing less than the energy of universal evolution. But at the human level, the feeding and development of this energy is to some degree our own responsibility. And I think of this very often in educational and pastoral situations. This theme about the zest for life, the love of life, he uses the same word goût, this taste. He talks about le goût de Dieu, the taste for God, but also the taste for life. It preoccupates preoccupied him until the day of his death. In one of his last essays, the profoundly personal and mystical text, The Christic, written in March 1955, about four weeks before he died, five weeks before he died, he speaks of the primordial sources of the energy of evolution which modern science has discovered, but also of the need for humanity to find a way to increase the drive of evolution. He writes, if humanity is to use its new access of physical power with balanced control, it cannot do without a rebound of intensity in its zest to act, its zest to seek, its zest to create. Here he emphasizes once again that one of the key questions which humanity, or what we, uh, which is in process of what he calls process of planetary arrangement, or what we would call globalization, one of the prime key quick questions we face is a problem of spiritual activation. 
the further development of the human community on a planetary scale not only means further material and social developments, but it also is a spiritual process that requires spiritual energy resources. And the strongest transformative powers in creating a more cohesive, more collaborative Earth community are the powers of love. Love is described by him as a sacred reserve of energy. It is like the blood of spiritual evolution. He understood love as the most universal, most powerful of cosmic energies, a primordial power of attraction and unification that runs through all processes of becoming. But can there be really universal love for all human beings? We cannot truly love millions of strangers. We are probably more disturbed by human plurality than lovingly inclined toward the diversity of others. The spirit of one earth that he speaks of and of human unity seem at present more of a dream than a reality. Yet they are felt that this sense of the earth, this sense, this feeling for greater human unity is now in process of formation. The active moving forward of the noosphere may produce a superabundance of love that can overcome human isolation and break down the innumerable partitions that still divide human societies. These ideas, which I only mention here, they would require a much longer elaboration to be understood and which are also paralleled in Sorokin's marvelous large treatise on the ways and power of love types, factors and techniques of moral transformation published in 1954 when he had a research project at Harvard. I mean, these ideas are enormously inspiring, but they require quite a lot of unpacking. Uh, I think they provide a wonderful searchlight for finding a different more socially effective kind of love that is of great interest to a number of contemporary writers, artists, creatives. One example I mention here is the American writer Anne Hillman, whose book Awakening the Energies of Love, Discovering Fire for a Second Time, itself inspired by a quotation from Teilhard, provides an extraordinary inspiration for learning to love in a new and different way. Hillman is deeply interested in the internal aspects of social change, and she investigates how interior personal development can contribute to fundamental changes in our, color, in our culture. Awakening the energies of love and learning to live with fire inside, we learn to live in relationship in wholly new ways, to live as a greater community of life, Hillman writes. Her journey into awakening the energies of love was inspired by Teilhard's often quoted sentence, someday after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then for a second time in the history of the world, humanity will have discovered fire. Now this brings me to my concluding reflections Many passages in Teya's work express a strong sense of the interdependent unity and organicity of all living things. There's much one could say about how he quotes and uses evolution, but I can only speculate today how Teya might have responded to the agonies and hopes of our world that has undergone such profound changes. From all he has written, I would expect him to be fully aware of our great and urgent environmental responsibilities 
as well as the promising possibilities of dialogue between different civilizations and faith traditions. To sum up, human consciousness and society have evolved in the past, but they now urgently need to evolve further. An evolutionary transformation is happening at the level of the human species, not simple at the level, simply at the level of the individual, the family, the tribe, or just small human groups. It is a revolutionary transformation at a global level, linked to a deep awareness of pluralism and diversity. Our experience of the biological oneness of the human species now brings vision of cultural and spiritual oneness into sharper focus. But greater unity will not happen automatically. It depends on human efforts of cooperation. Central to this is the furtherance of the zest for life to ensure human flourishing for all people on the planet and the realization of spiritual interdependence as much as economic and biological interdependence. Is it possible and realistic to hope and work for greater ecological harmony, for more peace, for more social justice, and for greater human unity on our globe? Atiyas, merely those of a lonely dreamer, simply utopian, completely unrealistic? What will be the next great mutation of Homo sapiens? That is the great question to which I have no definite answer. But I think to care for the people and the planet, questions of ethics and spirituality have to be addressed as of urge, uh, very urgently. Numerous socially and spiritually sensitive observers have pointed out that we need a global spiritual awakening on a much larger scale than exists at present. For this, spiritual education is needed at all levels, not only for sustainable living and not only a spiritual education for children and young people, but spiritual education is an integral part of lifelong learning for all. Only then can we develop the much-needed spiritual literacy that goes far beyond learning to read and write or the acquisition of professional trainings and skills. It needs to reach a much deeper dimension of insight and wisdom. If we can learn to combine such spiritual literacy with what the new earth literacy that Thomas Barry has argued for, then we may have some hope for creating a better world. In other words, to bring together earth literacy, our newly found earth literacy, or beginning to develop earth, developing earth literacy with greater spiritual literacy. Spiritual energy resources are the deepest energy resources humans possess, and deepest of all are those of mystical consciousness and practice. But the global community is still far from drawing on the transformative powers of love, and these for its own growth. So we need much dialogue and collaboration if people and the planets are to flourish. And even the Earth Charter speaks of the importance of moral and spiritual education for sustainable living. The further evolution of humanity will not occur at a social and material level alone, but it will have to have a spiritual dimension. Different thinkers have suggested a wide range of theories about this, and several of these have been deeply influenced by Teilhard de Chardin's own ideas, and I can't discuss this here. Coming from a different direction, the spiritual teacher Andrew Cohen speaks of evolutionary enlightenment as a new path to spiritual awakening. One of his close collaborators, Carter Phipps, has just published the book 
Evolutionaries, with the subtitle Unlocking the Spiritual and Cultural Potential of Science's Greatest Idea, namely the idea of evolution. His extensive discussion reveals how evolution provides also a new lens for the understanding of spirituality. Carter Phipps includes numerous references to Teilhard de Chardin and has dedicated his book, I quote, to the great pioneers in evolutionary science, philosophy and spirituality whose vision, dedication, perseverance and faith created new pathways for us all. It carries an epigraph from Teya's book, The Future of Men. We are moving. We are moving. The new evolutionaries are seen as the pilgrims of the future, a description which I've already mentioned Teya often gave of himself. But Phipps points also out that unlike during Teya's time, evolutionaries are now no longer lonely individuals, but part of a larger movement linked to the emergence of an evolutionary worldview that affects science, culture, and spirituality. This is an epochal shift from a world of studies to one of constant movement. I want to argue that the awakening to a new evolutionary and ecological Earth consciousness can inspire and hopefully empower human beings to create a more integrated, just, and peaceful Earth community. This is a great hope and vision whose realization may still be far away in time, but beyond dreaming, it can empower us to commit ourselves more emphatically to take on the necessary work for a more united, just, and peaceful world. Some of these dreams and hopes have begun to find expression in new forms of spirituality, whether ecological, evolutionary, or other. They also influence many contemporary political and academic debates, international conferences, a host of non-governmental organizations, and many new treatises and charters that are often the first step toward shaping new institutions and structures. Inferential example signed, I'm closing with those. To begin with, from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 to the Global Ethic, the Declaration of the Parliament of World Religions in 1993, to the Earth Charter in 2000, to the Charter of Compassion signed in 2011 by many cities, and most recently, a Charter for Engaged Spirituality in the 21st Century, drawn up in October 2012, a new initiative launched by the Awakened World Conference just held in Rome last month. Each of these examples bear witness to the fact that at present, many human beings around the globe are actively engaged in shaping social, moral, and spiritual values that will help to advance further human evolution. In the midst of all the current social and political unrest, the military and social violence, and devastating ecological disasters, this surely is a sign of hope and encouragement to collaborate with others in creating a new Earth community with a better future for us all. This is what we have to hope and work for. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.